Welcome to the Idea Fit Pro Show with your host, Sandy Todd Webster. All right, welcome to the Idea Fit Pro Show. My name is Ryan Halverson. I'm the director of event programming. Uh, I am taking over today for Sandy Todd Webster, your typical podcast host. And I'm grateful that she has let me take the reins today because uh, the individual that we have here on the show today is somebody that I have a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for. She is doing incredible work in her field of study. Um, I've had the opportunity to interview her before. I've had many conversations with her over the past couple of years. And every time I speak with her, I feel like I walk away with about 10 new wrinkles in my brain. And I'm so grateful how, you know, you're so generous with, with your information and, and Michelle, I have to come clean on something with you. You know, (laughs) not all of our conversations have intended to be centered on your topic of study but I selfishly have tried to steer them that way so that I can at least get some new insight or some new piece of wisdom from you. And you always oblige. And I'm so grateful. And I have to thank you for that and also apologize for my scheming ways. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you. I love that. Well, thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. (laughs) Well, yes, again, and thank you. So I'll I'll get this train back uh, on the right track. So um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our guests, here, Michelle Seeger, who is a preeminent scientist in the in the realm of behavior change. She's made it essentially her life's work. She works in the field as a practitioner with clients. She is in the lab, so to speak, studying the latest research and researching on the latest aspects of behavior change. She is a published author, uh, prominent speaker. I mean, you do it all. So Michelle, I want to welcome you here and thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. So before we get, dive in, I'd like to talk a little bit about your career in your own words. You know, if you could give a brief rundown of what your career has been like and why you are so focused on behavior change. Sure. So um, my career, st- actually, my career started when I was um, 12 years old and I decided I was going to be a cult deprogrammer as my career path. So, you know, fast forward 20 years after that. And, you know, when I get into this work on behavior change and I think about what I'm doing and I'm like, wow, I actually did become a culty programmer just on a different topic. So jumping to kinesiology in 1993, I got a master's degree in kinesiology with my mentor, Vic Catch. And we he helped me do my a master's thesis that was really launched this the last 30 years of my career. And what that was was we looked to see if cancer survivors who exercised improved psychologically than the cancer survivors that didn't. It was a randomized trial. These were people who were on average about four and a half years out after treatment. So they were living normal lives. Um, and the fact that the exercise benefited them um, psychologically via measures of anxiety and depression was what we aimed to study, but that wasn't what the big aha was. It was what happened in the focus groups after our study had ended when we called everyone back to talk to them and give them the measures again. And in the focus groups, we learned that um, despite being committed to exercising to us for our study and research purposes, once the study ended, people stopped exercising because they were busy taking care of business, taking care of other people. And it was the recognition that if people who'd faced a life-threatening illness had difficulty prioritizing their own self-care through behaviors like physical activity, 
then we had a real problem in society. And I literally a light bulb, you know, boop, you know, went off. And I'm like, this is my problem and I'm going to solve it. So everything I've done since that point in time has been in service of understanding how to help people make sustainable behavior change. And I, I, I just want to emphasize that sustainability has been my, that's the focus. It really hasn't been on behavior change because the participants in our study changed their behavior for us. They just didn't sustain, sustain it. And I've attempted to study that question, as you already pointed out, both through academic research, both my own, but I learn from everyone. So, you know, um, that is so important because I only have these set of eyes and my own brain with wrinkles, you know, in the brain. <laughs> and, um, but everyone else is out there doing all these other things. So if we can study across scientific areas and programs of research, then we can better understand the elephant, if you will. And also, if I were only in the ivory tower, you know, ideas are great, but working with people is where the rubber meets the road. So I feel super privileged that I've been able to work in both spaces. And it's, it's been this, um, you know, privileged intertwining of research and real life. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you really do get to sort of in a way practice what you preach and get into it and learn what the latest information is and what the practices are and then get to apply it to see if it actually works in real yes. life. Yes. And vice versa. I might have a conversation with a client and go, huh, I wonder, you know, like something brand new. I wonder what the research says about it. So mm -hmm. it's it's been a very generative path. So thank you for asking about it. Yeah, of course. And so, you know, it's interesting to me about the concept of behavior change or, as you say, sustainability. You know, it's not something that's a new concept. It's not a new field. You've been studying it for quite some time, but you know, I, I got my start in the fitness industry in 2004 with IDEA, and I don't remember really this being much of a conversation back then. It was more about the structure of a workout and or maybe, you know, telling people to eat a certain way because it's going to benefit them. But there was never an emphasis really from in my perspective on behavior change. And it seems that it's taken sort of a front row seat over the past even maybe 10, maybe even only five years. Can you, you know, would you agree with that? And, and why do you think that is? Uh, I agree with you that behavior change has come front and center. Um, sustainability, I would say, in the last three, four years has everyone is talking about sustainable behavior change. And there's a really good reason, uh, you know, between organizational well-being initiatives and the fitness industry and healthcare, we've all come to the same conclusion that in order to achieve outcomes, whether individuals, the outcomes individuals care about or the outcomes that as professionals and organizations and as industries care about, sustainable behavior change is the holy grail. And so um, whether we're talking about a patient managing their chronic illness or someone achieving their fitness goals or an employee, um, you know, improving in something that the organization cares about, sticking with the behavior long-term and is what is needed. So I, I think because, um, the, and there's real cost implications, right? It's very expensive to promote 
exercise, healthy eating, any behavior related to health, well-being, or fitness um, in ways that gets people to stop and to start, but to stop and to start and to stop. And, and, and there's been this trajectory of starting and stopping. And I think now people are like, this is expensive. We invest in training that is ineffective. We invest in vendors that are selling programs that are based on outdated science um, or apps that are based on outdated science. Um, we need, we need, we need to focus on what we're really hoping to achieve. And that phrase has been sustainable behavior change or the outcome that people are now really focused on as they should be is sustainable behavior change. Right. It only makes sense from a, you know, from a fitness professional standpoint that if, if your clients are constantly, as you say, starting and stopping, it's, you know, it's essentially not good for business. How do we keep people engaged for a longer period of time? We promise certain things that maybe we can't fulfill and we focus on, you know, certain processes that, as you say, that it's outdated science. And so that sort of brings me to something that I always appreciate about your work, which is you're not afraid to, to hold a spotlight onto things that maybe we're doing wrong. And of course, then following it up with what the science says and what you see is the right approach. And that's something that you talk about in your book, The Joy Choice. And that's all about habit formation and how our reliance on habit formation may actually be sabotaging our success. Can you explain a little bit about why you say that? Sure. So, um, so I want to start by saying habit formation, having things, you know, I depend on my flossing habit. I say this all the time. I depend on my dog watering and feeding habit. Don't have to think about it. Thank goodness the dog doesn't starve, right? So habits, automatic habits that we don't have to think about can really help us in our lives. And I want to make sure that I assert that first. The challenge with habit formation comes when we start to think about more complex behaviors. And since you know, I'm talking to you an idea, I'm gonna really focus on fitness. Um, although um, really any complex behavior is gonna, the same conversation or, or issues are gonna be relevant. So if we think about how do we create and how do we sustain habit formation, it's through what's referred to as a habit loop. There's a cue, which is, you know, for me, it might be uh, brush, you know, putting the toothbrush back in its container and then reaching. I don't have to think about, right, that if that's the segue to the picking up the floss, that's the cue. Then the behavior is the floss. And then the reward is, you know, some sense of satisfaction I get from knowing that I floss my teeth. And then it, be, it becomes this reward loop that just keeps going. And I don't have to think about it. That's the way our brain works. But flossing happens in the bathroom. There's not a lot of people there. There's not a lot of, you know, phone calls happening or, you know, not that people don't bring their phones in the bathroom sometimes. But um, so uh, the habit loop is really vulnerable to disruption because the, the, the way it works is you have to have this context cue that you can depend on. But if your kids are running in, not in the bathroom, somewhere out, you're about to leave your exercise class and your kids run in, you know, it all goes to heck, you know, because uh, the cue has been disrupted. And so when it comes to complex behaviors, um, I think there's been 
a bit of an overgeneralization. Now, in the literature, I am not a habit researcher per se, but I try to follow the literature on the topic. And, you know, habit researchers themselves are talking about, you know, can does physical physical activity lend itself to habit formation? Are there phases of physical activity that we should think about or not think about? Um, so does that answer your question about um, why habit formation might be misguided for many people? Right. Well, I think, you know, as a fitness professional myself and, you know, reading your books, it's always sort of like it's it's hard to read in some ways because it's like all the things that I had said to do may not be correct. And all the practices that I try to implement into my own life, now I understand why I didn't succeed at them because maybe I'm not somebody that is able to to take that habit. And I think in your book, you meant, you, you give a story about your husband, right? You, you talk about how he is capable of that sort of regimented yes. ability. I'm not like that. And you describe yourself who's sort of in a way the opposite. Like it's relying on habits like he exercises at six in the morning, every morning without fail, that doesn't, nothing changes that. He's able to implement that into his life and you're not. And so I think that's what the point is that understanding that it's okay that some of us can't make habits in that way. Can I respond to two things? The first thing that I think, I just want to make sure I say to you and to everyone listening is, it is not our fault that we might be believing or promoting things that um, aren't as um, effective or adaptive as we hope that or were taught they would. It's not our fault. That's the, that's the situation. And this gets at the story of behavior change. Our approach to promoting fitness and exercise and you know healthy lifestyles in general has evolved in this natural organic way in society. And a lot of it has come out of research that has valued and privileged doses and prescriptions and very precise ways of doing things. So it is not our fault that we might be at a time of reckoning where we want to say, wait a sec, what is what we're doing working? And if not, let's think about why not and what we can do differently. So I want to make sure we all give ourselves grace because it is not anyone's fault that we do that. The second thing I want to say that you pointed out that is really important is that there are personality differences. And I always try to say this, and I did not say that this at the beginning. The, here's the caveat. Nothing is true for everyone. So there are these innate personality differences. And you pointed to my husband. You know, in my book, I have this category that I created called habiter or unhabiter me, habiter husband, unhabiter me. Habiters tend to be people who are super disciplined, um, have a have an ability to keep their life on. They do what they say they're going to do every time they get through their to-do list every day. Although my husband might say he can't, he doesn't do that every day, but there's a personality. Um, there's also a context. Unhabiters like me tend to be, not everyone, nothing's true for everyone, but tend to be people who are juggling different roles and responsibilities, you know, um, taking our kids to school or, you know, um, taking an unexpected dog to the vet unexpectedly first thing in the morning. Um, these are, and these things, because of the way the habit loop works, context cue would just get disrupted again and again. And so there's something both about my personality, but also my life context that makes me unable to form habits or create this, uh, this um, uh, ironclad habit loop for a complex behavior. Again, 
Flossing, great. So we have to we have to respect. And so part of the new approach, part of the new story of behavior change is to help individuals identify what types of approaches and to help ourselves as professionals identify what types of approaches will work best for you. And it would be very easy for someone to talk to my husband and figure out pretty quickly. He's someone he wants to set a very specific goal, you know, and doesn't need, doesn't want wiggle room. But other people, the research suggests we'd be much more effective instead of trying to get people to hit a bullseye and to be precise and to set smart goals. If instead we actually taught them how to be flexible, to value being flexible. But I, you know, so I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's it's an important topic to bring up because I think, you know, let's say from my own example, as a fitness professional, I've integrated fitness into my life, usually on a daily basis for the long term. It's easy for me to tell somebody else, just do it, you know, pick a time that works for you. Early morning, choose 6am because that's before the kids get up. That's before your life starts essentially, and do it every day and you'll be fine. It's so easy for us to say that to somebody, but it doesn't work necessarily for all people. That's right. That's right. And that's, I think we've been plagued by um, Alan Alda, who's what? Oh gosh, it's not going to come to me. Um, I can, it, I don't remember the wonderful phrase he came up with, but basically the gist is that um, we assume we come to our work out of our perspective and assumptions and experiences and values and beliefs and people in the fitness industry love fitness, you know? And so that has been one of the issues and you just addressed it. With this in mind, then, you know, I think a lot of fitness professionals might be listening today and thinking, well, now what do I do then? If I can't, you know, prescribe a plan for my client, if I can't say, just do this on Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, eat this on such and such a day, integrate three cups of vegetables into every meal, go and do it. And then they aren't, they don't do it. Maybe there's blame there or whatnot, but you know, what is it that we can do for those unhabiters to help them to have sustainable behavior change? Well, I mean, great question. And um, the first thing I think is important to point out is I do believe having plans in place is important. Um, it's important for anything, whether it's, you know, related to our family or our work or leisure time. Um, the thing that we need to start doing, which is why I wrote the joy choice is, and in fact, this isn't a, oh no, what do I do? This is a, oh yes, I get to do this. And actually what it is, is what we want to do is we do want to help people plan, but we want to do that with the awareness that life, again, understand is your client a habiter or not a habiter? And I personally believe I don't have any data to support this. I personally believe most people live unhabiter lives. Um, and so if that were, let's just say my assumption is true, I would say what we need to do and what we get to do is actually help people learn how to be creative problem solvers. So yes, let's create plans, but then let's teach people the value of doing something instead of nothing. And as you know, from reading the book, um, the joy choice is the perfect and perfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing. And, you know, something instead of nothing is not a very sexy 
concept. And in fact, I was giving a talk um, in a department that, that teaches students at the university um, physical activity, how to teach physical activity. And one of the esteemed professors raised his hand and said, you know, Michelle, I'm just going to push back a little bit. Do we really need to have a conversation about something is better than nothing. Didn't the Surgeon General's report come out in 1996 and basically say we could accumulate physical activity throughout the day? And I said, it did, and we have, and people have not internalized this message because of how our belief system works and how embedded they become. And so the answer to this gentleman was, yes, yes, and yes, we do need to talk about it, but. We need to frame it in ways that are strategic, that are inspiring. And that's why I called it the joy choice. So that it's not just, oh, I should do something instead of nothing, but I get to pick a joy choice. And yeah, it's not my plan, but it keeps me in sync with my overarching goals. It keeps me on track on the path of lasting change. And I need to stay in sync with myself if I'm going to have the, you know, energy and enthusiasm to tend to the people and projects that I care most about. Absolutely. And that's something I think that you've, that another thing that I love about the work that you do is sort of releasing people from the stress and structure of what exercise has been designed to do, or at least the way that we've sold it. And you've talked about that. You've been beating the weight loss drum for a while now and trying to shift the perspective on for the industry in that we may be doing a disservice to people by promoting certain outcomes for exercise as opposed to, you know, placing it in joy and placing it in a choice where you're like, I get to do this and I want to do this. And this is fun for me as opposed to, I got to add on another chore to my life and do this because of, you know, I'm looking for this outcome. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. You know, and, and that was one of the primary research questions I had when I first started researching this which was, you know, is exercising for weight loss and uh, a motivating reason to exercise or not, or not? And my research, you know, very quickly early on showed that when, when um, people exercise for weight related reasons, my earliest work was focused explicitly on women. Um, it actually was a non-optimal motivator, but what I also learned, which I, I was against my hypothesis, was that even promoting health was non-optimal. And when I got that, when, I, when my data showed me that um, health-related reasons for exercising weren't, were basically the people who are exercising for weight-related reasons were doing the same amount of exercise as people who are exercising for health-related reasons. I was like, oh my gosh, they can't be right. How could they be right? Health is such a great reason. It's such an internal reason for exercising. But of course, one of the wonderful things about research is when your hypotheses don't pan out, you get to, you have to dig, dive deep into other literatures to understand weight loss and health are future related outcomes. Research shows that people are much more motivated by immediate feel good um, benefits than future ones. So that in a nutshell, that's why promoting exercise for weight loss and health. Again, we're talking in general. Some people, I've had people stand up in my audiences and say, I exercise for health and it, I've been doing it for 40 years. And that's fine. Again, it's understanding what has worked and what hasn't and, and kind of moving forward from there. The other thing that I just want to make sure I say on this topic is that 
And this really, um, Patty Akakakis um, is really the, the father of this line of research that I've been following, who was so inspirational to me in the 90s. His work looked at whether high intensity exercise, how that influenced people's emotional responses to exercise. And what we know now is that, and it really, again, I, I um, came out of his program of research is that high intensity exercise, which is what people typically do when they're trying to lose weight, tends to increase people's displeasure. And we know that when people don't want to do something, they tend to not do it. And the research really, I don't know if, it, if conclusively is too strong of a word, but I think our field pretty much accepts the fact, at least the research field, that um, when people get positive feelings from exercise during movement, that is what it takes to for ongoing behavior. It's not after movement. So people will say in the, to people in the fitness industry, if I just push through it, I feel so great afterwards. And that is such a logical belief that, but the research doesn't, that doesn't pan out. It's how people feel during exercise that predicts it. And that's why it's so important to get people to stop focusing on future aspirations and start to design their exercise experiences in ways that will generate positive experiences in the now. Right. And so, you know, it, that bit of research or that concept really blew my mind when I read about it. And, you know, because as a fitness professional, I can't tell you how many consultations I had with potential clients where those two outcomes were the focus. It's like, do you want to lose weight? Do you want to improve your heart health? And the clients that came to me, those were the two things that they were focused on as right. well, either one or both of them. And so that's what we would sell. But, you know, now that we're, you know, that as you're suggesting, the research doesn't support this as a sustainable process. What do we sell then if we can't sell weight loss and health improvement? We sell energy. We sell well-being. This is a shift and it is happening and it will have to. I mean, the ship is going to have to turn and it, but it is turning. I, I hear these ideas being talked about much more in the field than I ever have before. Um, so what People, people say at this point, personal trainers, if I'm speaking to a group of, but my client asked me, which is what you just said, what do I tell them? They want to lose weight. What do I tell them? Well, you have to be strategic because we have to meet people where they are. And if people, if clients and gym members want to lose weight, that is a goal. But what we have to do is help them understand. And the way I do it in my own work is I ask people, you know, in the past, have you, what's been your primary reason for starting to exercise? And of course, most people say losing weight. And then I ask after they say that, then I say, well, in general, do you stay motivated to do it over time? And you know, if they're coming to you, they don't, right? So the answer is probably no. And then you say, well, you know, there's research about why exercising for that reason actually isn't a really great, you know, lasting driver. And so I think that what we can do is educate people to think more strategically to why it hasn't worked in the past using very easy science-based reasons and then help bring them to understand that um, the research shows that, that feeling better, um, having a sense of well-being 
that those are just much more potent drivers. And of course, the irony is, is that in order to actually lose lose weight and sustain that weight loss, um, you know, sustainable physical activity is a part of it. It's like you have to let go of something that you're grasping to really focus on the process of what it takes to um, to stick with it. And that's and 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 it's not that you want to demean people's desire to lose weight because there are really valid reasons. But what we want to do is help explain why that reason isn't necessarily going to help them achieve what they actually want long term and and what will. Right. It's not that it's going to keep them on that road, because if you're not seeing weight loss right away, it's demotivating. So how do we keep them engaged so that they do achieve that goal at a certain point? And the other thing is, um, actually, I, you know, when it comes to losing weight, we know that what people eat is much more impactful. So that's another reason that we might want to disconnect physical activity entirely from weight loss and have it become a gift and a happy making behavior, right? So thank you for asking that. Is there, I know that it, that we're getting close to the end mm -hmm. of our time. Is there any other burning question that you have? No, I, you know, I think I would love to leave it on that note. Honestly, it's just, you know, I think that's the missing piece is how do we really get folks to understand that there is so much joy and movement that, that fitness can do so many things for you, that exercise can do so many things for you. But if you, if there's something that you feel that we have not covered on, feel free to, to end with that. No, I, you know, I think you're asking the questions that are reflecting where the whole field is. And again, I, I do really feel like the ship, I've seen the ship turn. I mean, I started in the 1990s and, you know, people did not want to read my research, you know, I because it was going against the grain. And it's the field in academia and in industry is changing. And I, I think it's wonderful that people are open to recognizing and reflecting and then shifting from there. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these ideas and the new book. And, you know, I look forward to seeing you at the conference too. Absolutely. So speaking of the book, where can folks pick it up? Because I think it's recently released, yeah? Yes, um, they can get it anywhere. I mean, I have all these links on my book page and my website, but really anywhere has the book, The Joy Choice. And I hope that it can give people some of the answers that we didn't have time to get to today. I, I mean, the book is so full of stuff. Like there was no possibility of getting through it in a half hour. <laughs> and it, then also, as, as Michelle says, she's going to be at Idea World Convention this summer, giving a talk on this very subject. So we're gonna get to be a little bit more in depth. You'll get a chance to perhaps answer her, or ask her questions in person. So be sure to sign up for that event and see her live and in person. Uh, I just want to thank you again so much for your time, Michelle. I always, like I said at the beginning, enjoy speaking with you. I learn so much every time. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you this summer. Thank you. Me too. Thanks, uh -huh. Ryan. For more information about Dr. Michelle Segar's work or to connect with her, please check today's show notes to find the links. I'm sending gratitude out to Ryan Halverson for guest hosting this fascinating episode. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, you can find the Idea Fit Pro Show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're, you source your podcasts. We'd be honored if you took a minute to give us a rating, and we'd be so grateful if you would share the show link and news about the podcast on your social feeds. Meantime, we'll keep working hard to bring you more great material like this. 
This is Sandy Webster signing off. Until next time, stay positive and keep inspiring the world with your special magic. Don't ever forget that you make a huge difference in the lives of others and that idea is here to support you in this critical purpose. Thanks for all you do to make the world a healthier, happier place. The Idea Fit Pro Show is part of the Idea Fit Inc. podcasting network. Many thanks to our executive producer, Jordan Leeds, and our engineer and editor, Mike Hilding. Copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Reproduction without permission is strictly prohibited. Thank you.